0: Good evening to you all. It's good to be with you. I'm John McCones, one of the assistant pastors, in case I haven't uh, met you. And uh, we are continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, We've been in 1 Corinthians most of the fall, a little bit of the summer. I think we'll be set to finish pretty soon, Uh, two, three, four, well, three, four more sermons perhaps. Uh, So tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the words are printed in your bulletin, just the uh, the first 34 verses, I will read those, and um, as is our custom, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you could respond with thanks be to God. So hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each In his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts or ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, thank you for this, your word. Lord, we thank you that Christ is risen from the dead. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. Lord, would you encourage us in that hope this evening? Would you use it as you see fit? Would you apply this word to our hearts by your spirit that rests within us? And would we we be careful to give you all the glory and honor and praise? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When you were a kid, did you ever play the game where you just stack a bunch of cards? You stack playing cards, taking turns, until the whole house falls down. I remember playing this often. I don't know that I've ever seen my kids play it. Show of hands, who has played, you know, you just stack cards a couple at a time, you build them up, and you're building that proverbial house of cards, right? 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 And then inevitably, right? Uh, the suspense builds as you keep building, but at a certain point, it's almost certain the very next card is going to cause the entire structure to come crashing down. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're wrong. But it always collapses eventually. And there's always one card that does it. It's a fun game, probably as old as playing cards are themselves. There have been a number of variations on this game in recent years. Some actually work the opposite way, and I'm thinking primarily of Jenga here. All right, now, who's played Jenga? Okay, more than the cards, okay, so more than the cards. Um, Jenga, we're familiar with that. Uh, the small versions you play on the tabletop to like the life-size versions where they're like a... Tall as you? Who's played like the life-size ones where they're like as tall as you? Okay, I think, I think Ligonier has one. I think they're pretty common summer camps and conference centers and things like that. Uh, um, you know, six, eight-foot tall structures. Uh, in Jenga, the entire structure is intact <clears throat> at the beginning of the game. It's like a mini skyscraper of sorts. Uh, um, and so what you do is you just pull away one piece at a time, and now you're restacking them on top. But eventually, inevitably, the one piece is pulled. And when that one piece is pulled, the entire structure collapses. Well, Paul, today, in this text, is saying that in the Christian faith, the resurrection is like that one piece. Paul is going out of his way to show that to the church in Corinth And by way of extension to us, that the resurrection is central to the gospel. Verses 1 through 4, as he starts off here. uh, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The resurrection is not a peripheral teaching. It's not something Christians can pick and choose as they see fit. It's not something where there are different views among Bible-believing Christians. There are things like that. This is not one of them. The Bible-believing Christian is one who by necessity believes in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a non-negotiable. The resurrection is the very heart of the Christian message. It's the very core of what we believe. Without the bodily resurrection of Christ, it all falls apart, as they say. And we'll hear more on that. Paul's also laboring here to show that the resurrection is not unsubstantiated by evidence. He's handling people's objections here. He's doing some apologetics, if you will. He's either anticipating their objections or responding to the ones that he has heard. So Paul will start by listing at least five different sets of witnesses who visibly saw the risen Christ. This is not an all-encompassing list by any means. We know there are people who saw the risen Christ by name that are not on this list. So he's not trying to list everyone. But listen to it again, uh, starting in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve... Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul here lists Cephas first, that's Peter, Simon Peter. He then lists the 12, probably minus Thomas here. And, of course, minus Judas. He lists more than 500 brothers at one time. He lists James, Jesus' half-brother. And I love the words of Charles Erdman on this. Then he appeared to James, his own brother, who had not believed in him, whose testimony is for this reason the more valuable whose future leadership in the church at Jerusalem shows the transforming power of trust in a risen Christ. Back to our list. Jesus appeared to all the apostles, likely all now, you know, still no Judas, of course, uh, but Thomas now there. Okay, That's why we get the all. Uh, and then uh, lastly, the risen Christ appeared to Paul himself. Jesus appeared in his risen body to no small number of witnesses. And Paul goes out of his way to say in verse six, most of whom are still alive, referring to the 500, though some have fallen asleep, which is a common reference to death, which we see again in this passage. Paul is inviting the Corinthian church and any who would doubt the resurrection of Christ to ask the hundreds of people who were still alive. Did you see the risen Christ? Ask them. You know of them. You probably even know some of them personally is what he's saying to the church here. Ask them, especially the ones you know and trust. See if they're convinced that they saw the risen Christ. Many of the eyewitnesses of the risen Christ would of course go on to die for this belief. And that only strengthens the case. As people don't often die for something they don't really believe is true. People don't often die for a lie. They don't surrender their lives for something they made up. And, just to point out one more thing, there's really no such thing as a group hallucination where everyone sees the same thing, right? So, okay, this person... Was, thought they saw Christ and they were having a hallucination. This person thought they saw and this person. then. They, but 500 people at the same time all having the same hallucination? That's not the way that works. I don't care what they ate. Okay, uh, So, uh, Paul's place is of course last on this list. And after a few words on Paul's role as an apostle, he goes on to answer the question. Right? What if There is no resurrection of the dead. It's hard to know for certain, but it's likely that perhaps some in the Corinthian church were questioning that there was a resurrection for them too. Maybe this resurrection thing was just a Jesus thing. But they thought perhaps they could never be resurrected from the dead. Paul labors to show the inconsistency in this line of thinking in a host of different ways, right? Listen to this logic. If there is no resurrection period, then Christ could not have been raised. Make sense? If Christ has not been raised, there's no point in our preaching. It's all in vain. I'm talking about nothing. Nothing of any substance whatsoever. Not only that, if Christ has not been raised, we are lying about God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is pointless. That is, you've believed in a lie. Just as our preaching is in vain, so your faith too is in vain. Also in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. The resurrection is what shows the payment of Christ dying for our sins and that it was accepted and effective in our place. In verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, all those who have died, all those who have gone before us are irretrievably lost. There's no hope for them. And Lastly, in verse 19, if Christ has not been raised, there's no hope for us either. We are to be pitied. We've believed a lie. We've participated in a lie. We've propagated a lie. We've misrepresented God. When we die, that's it. That's all there is. End of story. It's a grim outlook indeed if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But, dear friends, that's not the case. Christ has been raised. So, Paul then counters the deep darkness of a world without resurrection with the light and hope of a world where Christ has been raised. And because Christ has been raised, we do, in fact, have every reason to hope. We have every reason to hope for ourselves, and we have every reason to hope for those who have gone before us that also place their trust in the Lord Jesus. In verse 20, Paul calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 23, he again refers to Christ, the first fruits. I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time talking about that. The, this language is based on Israelite Old Testament harvest festivals. There were many, but the Old Testament feast of firstfruits was actually the second of three annual pilgrimage festivals. And in those pilgrim festivals, every family... At a minimum, the male of the family was required and expected to travel to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple. So this is the second. FYI, the first is the Passover, and the third is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, in an issue of Table Talk, put it this way. Passover was not the only spring festival celebrated under the Covenant. For the Israelites also commemorated the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. The Feast of First Fruits actually took place during the week long Passover celebration. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 8. It took place on the first day after the Sabbath that occurred in the midst of the week. Pentecost occurred 50 days after that Sabbath and marked the culmination of of what started at the Feast of Firstfruits. As its name indicates, the Feast of Firstfruits marked thanksgiving to God for the first fruits of the harvest. In this case, the grain and cereal harvested in the spring in ancient Palestine. At this festival, the Israelites offered the very first sheaf of the harvest and were not allowed to eat anything from the crop until they gave its initial portion to the Lord. This required a great deal of faith on the part of the Israelites as they would be giving the offering of first fruits at a time when not much at all was ready to be harvested. They had to trust God. That he would indeed provide the fullness of grain that had yet to come forth, something that from a human perspective was far from certain given the people's utter dependence on the right amount of rainfall to give the best crop. Somewhere around AD 30, the first fruits of an even greater harvest issued forth. For it was on that first day after the Sabbath that occurred in the midst of the Passover celebration. That Jesus rose from the dead. Lest there be any doubt that his resurrection fulfilled the feast of firstfruits, Paul tells us explicitly that Christ is the firstfruits of those who will be raised from the dead in our very passage tonight, verses 20 through 23. Just as the first fruits offered to God under the old covenant anticipated the fuller harvest to come, the resurrection of Jesus... Anticipates the bodily resurrection of his people, first promised under the Old Covenant. Fifty days after the Feast of First Fruits was the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, which was the grand celebration at the end of the grain harvest. On this occasion, the offerings of food and animals to the Lord were more lavish, an appropriate way to thank him for the tremendous bounty he had provided. You see, Christ is the firstfruits of all who will be raised from the dead. He was raised on that day of firstfruits, the first resurrection Lord's day. Fifty days later, he sent the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment, so to speak, of our resurrection on that great last day. Paul says elsewhere to the church of Ephesus that in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. From our text, we see that because Christ has been raised, all who have trusted in His sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection, we're told in verse 23 or verse 22, will be made alive. Because Christ has been raised, verse 23 tells us a day is coming when Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father having destroyed every rule and every authority and power that are opposed to the kingdom of God. Because Christ has been raised, verse 25 tells us, he will indeed defeat all of his enemies. Because Christ has been raised, we learn in verse 26 that he has defeated death. And when he returns, he will destroy the enemy of death fully and finally for his people. Because Christ has has been raised. This makes all the difference. How does that old song put it? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Even though Pastor Matt sang in the morning service, and it was good, that didn't inspire me to sing here. You don't want to hear it. <clears throat> Paul goes on then, in the last few verses in our text today, verses 29 to 34, to ask a few practical questions, not all of which are easy to understand, to say the least. Pastor Matt has the answers to all these questions for you, if you, if you have them. <clears throat> Paul doesn't appear to be endorsing necessarily all of these particular practices, But just recognizing that people do participate in them, and why on earth would they if there is no resurrection from the dead? So Paul asks in verse 29, again without endorsing it, why would people get baptized on behalf of the dead if there is no resurrection from the dead? What would be the point? He asks in verse 30, why would people put their lives at stake if this life is all that there is? If this life is all that there is, they should be holding on to this life at all costs, and not laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. Paul asks, why fight with beasts at Ephesus? Which could literally mean beast. Paul may have been thrown into the ring. Uh, or he could be speaking metaphorically here for his encounters with those who are hostile to Christianity as he sought to win them to Christ. If there is no resurrection, then the old adage or the Dave Matthews Band song, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, rings true. But then Paul offers a strong correction even going so far as to say that he is intentionally shaming those at Corinth who are entertaining this idea that there is no resurrection of the dead. He said earlier in the epistle, he intentionally went out of his way to say, I'm not trying to shame you. And here he actually says he is. Folks, this is a big deal. Those who are even keeping company with those who entertain this idea, Paul says in verse 34, are sinning and this bad company they are keeping is corrupting them we see in verse 33 and he calls them to wake up take hold of both christ's glorious resurrection and our future resurrection for themselves dear friends christ has been raised and the hope of the resurrection is for when christ returns yes but it's more than just hope for the future What I mentioned Charles Erdman said about James, the half-brother of Jesus, still rings true today. There is a transforming power that comes from trusting in a risen Christ. Do you know that transforming resurrection power in your life? Is it changing and shaping you day by day, little by little, conforming you more and more into the image of the risen Lord Jesus? Jesus. Our hope in Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago, and the hope of our future resurrection, which is inextricably linked to it, God intends to be changing us now. In this life, our problems are many, and the resurrection doesn't magically make them go away. In this life, though saved by grace, we continue to sin in our bodies of flesh. We get sick, we get discouraged, we get anxious, we doubt, uh, we don't love God the way we should, we hurt one another, we do all those things, and so much more. And one day too, we will go the face or the way of the earth. But in the words of an old Scottish preacher, and I just love this from the time I heard it, I wish I could tell you who said it. Our problems are nothing but a good resurrection won't take care of. Think about that. Whatever problem you have, it's nothing that a good resurrection won't take care of. Will we learn to preach this gospel hope to ourselves? And not only say it to ourselves, but learn to live by it more and more as Christ's resurrection from the dead conquers even our sinful flesh. My prayer is that we will. Let's pray.